Good morning. I'll be reading our key passage for us this morning. It's one that we read last week here in services. It'll be on the screen behind me today. Uh, the, the passage that we're reading comes uh, after the Israelite people had come to the edge of the promised land and they sent some spies out to look and to see what was there. And they came back and gave this report. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And from there, the people make the conclusion that they need to turn around. I want to suggest one very basic concept to you this morning, and I understand it is overly simplistic in a lot of ways, but I am overly simplistic. When it comes to the story that we are reading so far, it seems to me that there are kind of basically two people in the world. There are those people who understand who God is. They recognize what he is capable of. And then there are those who do not. And ultimately, what you believe or don't believe about God affects how you view the world. It changes how you view the world. And it has a great effect on what you think is possible. A group of people went to check out the same area. They saw all of the same things. They experienced all of the same experiences, same taste, same smells, all of it. And... When they come back and start to tell of it, we have this weird thing happen in that they come to completely different conclusions about what should be done. Why did they come to completely different conclusions? Because one group believed in an an all-powerful, unlimited God, and the other group did not. They both saw all the good things, the milk, the honey, the fruit, the abundance of the land that God had promised. They also all saw the obstacles, the people, the cities, the walls. They all saw the same thing. And yet one side said, look what God has given us. We must certainly go and take it. And the other side said, there is no way this is going to work. They will squash us like bugs. They will take our wives and our children. We will be utterly destroyed by these people. The same experience. Completely different conclusions. And here's the thing. Those who did not believe that God was capable of giving them the promise and the dream, those who were not willing to say God can do this, even though God had promised it, those who were not willing to take the first step as a nation into the promised land, didn't get to anyway. They wandered until they disappeared. And they lived some sort of half-life out in the middle of nowhere. But those who believed that God was capable, that were willing to take that first step, that were willing to say, God has said he will do this, God will do this, in fact, it's already done, 
they got to receive the promise that God gave to them. Sometimes with our kids, you see your, your kids and they're doing something or you're, you're trying to talk them into a new experience and they don't want to do it because they're afraid. Or maybe they got upset about something and they can't get over being upset and so they don't go and do the fun thing you were going to do because they're too upset to go and do it. And I can vividly remember having conversations with my kids like, man, you're, you're doing this to yourself. Like you could have this great thing we're going to do, but you're choosing not to. And, and I don't understand why. All you have to do is get up off your bunk, stop crying and come on. Come on. Let's go. <coughs> The people that could not, would not, did not see who God is kept themselves from inheriting what God wanted them to have. Think about that for a second. They kept themselves from inheriting what God wanted them to have. And of all this, here's what I wonder. I wonder how many things we miss out on because we say that God is capable, but we don't believe it enough to take that first step. What are we missing out on? Because we want to stay on our bunk. This next song speaks to the unlimited and miraculous power of God in our lives. It speaks that when we should not have hope, when we should not have help, when we should not have life, God does something amazing for us. He resurrects us. And so as we reflect on the power of Jesus Christ in our lives, may we wonder, are we stepping out into what God has for us? This God who promises us everlasting life and raises us from the dead. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing this together. Well, hello, everyone. You're looking lovely today. Not that I expect less. Uh, we are now uh, seven lessons into the story. Uh, and the story encourages us <clears throat> to look at the Bible as one big narrative with characters, a plot, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that may be never as important as it is this week. For us to remember where we've been, what we've covered, what we want to remember from the weeks that have been before us. Because the story, the narrative, plays a vitally crucial role in the story of Joshua. And in helping us to understand the story of Joshua, and in hopefully helping others to understand the story of Joshua. If we don't get the whole story, we're going to miss some things. As we have seen from the very beginning, this story is about who? It's about God. This is God's story. He is the main character. And this God, who is the main character, he created humanity so that he could be in relationship with humanity. Humanity was created special out of everything else so that God could walk and talk and share himself with humanity in such a way that he was not going to do with the rest of creation. And we know from other parts of the story that God's great desire was to be known. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense because all the words that we use to describe God in the most positive ways, that God is love, that God is kind, that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God is giving, those attributes don't really exist if God can't use them or give them to anyone. And so God desires to be known in all of these ways. But things, as we know, went off the rails quickly. Humanity turned from God time and time again. God has been hurt and frustrated, uh, angry, loving, merciful, sometimes vengeful. It has been a rough, a rough story so far, hasn't it? 
You know, when we go piece by piece like this, chapter by chapter, section by section, you realize how rough it really is, the the beginning to this story. But God had never given up on humanity, on people. He started over a couple times, but once he made a promise to Abraham and locked into that, God was going to keep his promise, that he would make his own nation, that they would have their own place, that they would have their own land. So he's brokenhearted, he's hurt, he's frustrated, but he still has a promise he wants to keep. You know, Jesus actually talked about this attribute of God several times. He's he's the master who prepares a feast for the town. And the people in the town decide not to come. He's, he's the owner of the vineyard. That when it comes time to take what is his... Those that are renting the vineyard kill his servants and eventually his son. He's the father betrayed and abandoned by his son in the most personal of ways who stares at the horizon every day waiting for that son to return. He is the woman who turns her house upside down to find one lost coin. Jesus knows all of this about God about who he is, about how he has been hurt, about what he has had to go through in order to just have people recognize him as God. So it is important for us to grasp this side of our main character, that there is this injured yet longing nature to him. Injured but longing. He wants to be known by his people. But there's one more thing that we need to remember. This is God's story, as we said, which means it is not whose story. It's not humanity's story. It's God's story. It's not humanity's story. The story as we find it today is again at a crossroads, which it seems to be at a crossroads every single week. Um, God has sent the Israelites to wander in the desert until uh, the generation of those who did not believe that he would do what he said he would do is passed away and gone. So he, he didn't, you know, erase the whiteboard completely, right? He just wanted those who, who didn't believe in him and trust him to go. That generation complained constantly. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. They built uh, an idol of a calf out of gold. But the root problem behind all of this was that they really did not trust God. And it showed itself over and over again in lots of different times and situations. God, why have you brought us out here? It's almost like they never approached God knowing that if they just asked him for what they needed, he would give it to them because he is capable and loving. Instead, they would sit back and whine and complain and grumble. And want to go back, and who is this God, and why are you leading us out here to die, and all these different things that we have seen over and over again. But the one thing that is becoming clear, at least to me, is that there is a giant difference between those who believe that God is capable and those who do not. And we saw it in the passage we read earlier about the spies that go into the land, and one of them is like, dude, this is ours, let's go. And everyone else is like, no, we're not going. We're going to be destroyed. They're giants over there. Those who believe that God is capable step out in faith, knowing that what he has said he will do is as good as already done. But those who refuse to step out, those who refuse to step out, those who refuse to trust God in this active way, by their lack of action show that they don't really think God is capable of doing something. If God leads you to the cusp and you get to the cusp of the promise and you say, I'm not going to go, what are you saying? You can't give me that. And this is the problem that God was facing. So that generation has passed away now. They're gone. There is a new generation that is here, that is ready to go. They find themselves back 
at the edge of the promised land. So what is the question that we, fine readers, have this morning? Will these people be any different than the people we just eliminated from the story? Or will they not? Will this generation trust God and step out into the unknown? And we're smart enough from having followed the story to know that this is not a given. That even these people will cross into the promised land. Based on behavior as we've seen it before. But that is the question that sits in front of us. Our first passage this morning. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun. Moses' aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I about I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you for all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. All right. This this seems kind of okay, right? So the other generation is gone. And this new generation is here. And we needed to read all of this together because there are some really significant things that happen within this passage. For one thing, there is a renewing of covenant between God and his people. God is committing to them. They are committing back to him. God promised to lead them into the land and that they would have great victories. And the people promised that they would follow God. Now, these are words that we have heard before. But there are some interesting things that we see in there that we need to remember. God promises them that everywhere their feet touches will be theirs. He promises them that no one can stand against them. He tells them, you need to follow me into this place. I will lead you everywhere you need to go and it will all be yours. And the people respond saying, yes. But in the middle of all these words from God comes this phrase over and over and over again. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because God is with you. He's leading you. He's taking you. So go. This is an important statement that is necessary within this context for this very reason. Why did the previous generation not take the land? Because they were not strong and courageous. They were afraid and discouraged. 
And when they saw the land, they said no, because they did not see a way. But God tells them, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Is that because they're a better group of people than the group that passed off? Is it because maybe they, you know, they picked up some fighting skills in the wilderness? Is that why they shouldn't be afraid? No. Why should they be strong and courageous and unafraid? Because God is with them. They have nothing to fear with God on their side. But I want you to understand something which God helps us out with here. This is a good thing. Even if we know that God is on our side, and even if we know that God is going to give us what he has promised, and we can see it there, and God is saying, go, what does it still take to step out in faith? Strength and courage. It still does. It still takes strength and courage. If trusting God were really simple... Wouldn't everybody do it? But that's not the situation we find ourselves in, right? Because for this reason, for them to go into this land, for them to face these giants and these walls that they do know deep in their hearts they can't take on their own, if they're going to go into the land, they have to be strong and courageous in God. It is God, his presence with them, that allows them to be strong and courageous. Not that they are suddenly better people than they already were. So what needs to happen is the people need to go, they need to trust God, and God in turn needs to deliver on his promise. This is how this relationship will move forward. If those things don't happen, then what uh, what occurs? If they don't go, relationship breaks. If they do go and God doesn't back it up, relationship breaks, right? So this is what needs to happen. They need to take the first steps into the promised land, but there are two things that need to happen first. The first one is this. There is a giant river between them and the promised land. Jordan River, okay? And I just, I love this so much. Um, they, the priests that are carrying the ark, they, they walk ahead of all the people and they go down and they touch the riverbank and, and the passage says that the Jordan's flow stopped and all the people crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. That is eerily familiar, isn't it? <laughs> they cross over on dry ground again to the other side. So, if you are one of these people and this happens at the very start, what are you thinking? What are you associating this with? You're associating it with God delivering you from Egypt, with the mighty shows of power that God put on, the displays of power that God showed all those times ago about him parting the sea, about the strongest army in the world falling down. It has to be an intentional move, right? It has to be an intentional move that when they walk through there on dry ground, they're remembering that God has already defeated the greatest enemy they faced. So they can be what? Strong and courageous. Secondly, they have to renew the covenant with God. So I know this is weird, but when they get to the other side, all of the men in the camp are circumcised. Now, this is important because this was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. It was the, the physical manifestation of this. So they get to the other side. All of the men are circumcised. When everybody heals up, they're ready to go. Now, there are, in fact, people in the land. People who have lived in the land for a very long time. And the first city that they face is a really key victory for a lot of reasons. Um, being closer to the border, it, would is, it was a more heavily fortified city. And this city had huge walls all the way, so big that people were living in apartments on the walls, in the walls. I mean, it was big, this wall. And this is the first city that, again, these people in tents, 
with children and animals and all this stuff are coming up to, this is their first opponent, the most fortified city in the area. So this is a challenge, but it's an important moment. The city is called? Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Can you imagine drawing this up as a battle plan? Here's what we're going to do. Is it, is it clockwise or counterclockwise? I can't remember. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests and blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, and the army returned to camp and spent the night there. So imagine for a moment that you are a Jerichoian, however you would say that, and you see this huge group come and this is what they do. They march around you. How do you feel at this moment as a Jericho herb, (laughs) Jerichoian? You're confused, right? But do you feel threatened? I mean, you've got the walls, right? And what is the one thing you, you know without a shadow of a doubt? There is nothing these people can do about these walls. That's the one thing you know. Nothing. There is nothing they can do about these walls. These walls were made to keep people out. And this group of gypsies are not going to get in. So if they want to walk around the city and blow their trumpets, okay then. So we have the the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day... They got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies that we sent. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. They just fell down. (laughs) They just fell down. Just like... They just fell down. So everyone just ran straight in. All of a sudden, it is a completely exposed city with no defenses at all. So they just run right in. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab. Her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. 
Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the man Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Something fascinating to think about. Rahab lived in the wall and the wall collapsed. So did she have like a tower that remained with just her apartment on top? Kind of curious. Kind of curious to know about that. This is such an amazing story. And there are some very important things that we need to notice. And that is this. Number one, Jericho represents something. It represents ownership of the land. This city had been there for a long time. It represents strength. The greatest fortification that man could build at that time was to wall up their city, and this was done in an impressive way. The walls are big, strong, and the Israelites don't have any way to penetrate them. If any city can withstand an attack, it is this city. It is designed for this. So there is only one conceivable way they could win this battle, and that is if God wins it for them. That's the only way. There is no other way for this to happen. And God wins the battle in such a godlike way that there can be no question as to who made this happen. They march, they march, they march, they march, they march, they march seven more times, they shout, boom. That's not them shouting really loud. We try to explain God things away a lot of the time, right? Well, the sound waves had loosened the mortar between the bricks, and then that last day when they all shouted together, it made everything shake, and that's why it fell down. No, these are huge, these are big. God did this. There's no question that God did this. Remember the statements that we saw over and over again from God during the Exodus. When he was talking to Moses, when he was talking to Aaron, what is the one thing he said over and over again? I'm going to do these things and then they will know that I am the Lord. I will do this and then you will know that I am the Lord. I will do this and then they will know that I am the Lord your God. That statement came up over and over again. And you have to think that this defeat of Jericho is such a statement. Then you will know and they will know that I am the Lord your God. There is no question because only God could make this happen. The people should have the utmost confidence in God because he made this as easy for them as possible. And all the other cities that surround Jericho that are in the land, they should be scared because the one city that could defend itself is now gone. Gone. Completely destroyed. Secondly is the fact that God pays attention to those who recognize him as God and help his people. Rahab, who sheltered the spies within the city that kept them from getting caught, that helped them escape the city once the city was locked down, she and her family were spared. She joins up with the Israelites, and by the way, she became a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Okay? So I want you to keep that in mind, because it does in fact matter to God when people move to him. It matters. It makes a difference. There's an important theme that develops all throughout the story of Joshua. And that is this. God is giving the people what he has promised. He's doing it. He's making it happen. Remember uh, when God was ready to get rid of the Israelites those multiple times while they're out in the desert? Do you remember what Moses said to him more than once? If you leave them out here to die, then everyone will think What? Who is this God who led them out here to die? And, and he mentions Egypt more than once. Egypt will say, fine, you deliver these people just to kill them in the wilderness. Right? So listen to these passages. They're just taken from throughout the story. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver this city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed toward it. They entered the city and captured it, setting it quickly on fire. Joshua marched up to, from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, one solid campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. What is the story of Joshua about? God fighting on behalf of his people. And God bringing them victory over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because he is God and no one can stand before him. No one can stand before God. So God leading his people leads to victory. Period. God leading his people, his people following him, leads to victory every time. For all the failure that we have seen so far in the big story, it's kind of nice to have a big win. Because the people do have to follow God. They do have to trust him. They do have to go where he says they need to go. And they follow him and they do all these things. And with God on their side, if they trust him, they cannot fail. Amen? But there is something hard within this story as well. People live in this land. And when God gave the land to the Israelites, everyone else had to be destroyed, per God's orders. God looked out, he saw all the people, he saw all the animals, he saw all this and he said, I want all of these things completely wiped out. Men, women, children, animals, possessions. This was God's very specific command that these people and their cultures be burned to the ground. What do we do with the fact that God ordered the Israelites to destroy all these people? It seems incongruent with this loving, graceful, merciful, giving, caring God that we talk about so often. And I don't know about you, but I have had more than one person tell me that they could not believe in a God who ordered the genocide of entire cultures. They'll look directly at the story of Joshua and say, I can't believe in a God who did this. They will also apply that reasoning to hell, by the way. How can I believe in a God that would send people to hell, that would have hell in the first place? This comes up at a time, this idea, when we are especially sensitive to something that could only fairly be called genocide, the oppression and destruction of people. And our culture and our society right now is very tuned in to social justice, to all the things that are going on around us. This is a hard question that I want us to discuss because there are answers. The answers are not intended to make it easier to swallow, but there are answers. Okay? So what do we do? All right. The first thing that we have to remember is who this story is about. Who is this story about? It is about God. And God's attempt to have a productive relationship with humanity. On the one side of the story, there is God, God the creator, God the giver of life. 
But on the other side of the story is this complex figure of man who listens to the tempter. And the tempter's job is to pull man away from God. Man was made to be in relationship with God, but bent on not only denying that God has a place in their lives, but going so far as to say God doesn't exist. And then moving past that to make gods that they are more comfortable with than this God who is all and everything. At the heart of this is a really, really, really important question. You ready? Does God matter? Don't answer. Because we always say yes. We're in church. We all want to say yes, and then we want to say Jesus. Right? Don't answer yet. I know what you think, but don't answer. Does God matter? How much does he matter? Do you need to do everything he says? Or just some of the things he says? Can you take certain parts of him and not take other parts? Do you really need to listen to him at all? Because after all, what happens if you don't? And more often than not, humanity as a whole has come to a conclusion about God. And we've seen it litter the pages of the story so far. The God doesn't matter. Or he doesn't matter enough. Or he doesn't matter in the right way. Or he doesn't. Whatever caveat we want to throw in there. We have said that God is irrelevant. We have said that God cannot be proven. We have said that God doesn't exist. And then we have turned right around and worshiped something else. And made a God for us to follow. Does God matter? When God leads the people into the land he had promised them, that land was filled with people who had chosen to both deny and replace God. They had their own gods. That was not the God. They had their own way of doing things, which did not line up with how God wanted them to do things. And God, who has been through a train wreck after train wreck with these people, looks into the promised land and sees these people, and what does he think? This is trouble. These people who have rejected me, who don't want me, who say I don't exist, this is trouble. Because if I send my people into this place, and let's say we just push everyone to the outside. Let's say that we leave the vestiges of their culture and things in this land where my people are going to live. What's going to happen? They are going to adopt whatever they see. Whether it's a different God whether it's a different lifestyle or different morals, whether it's marrying into these cultures, which they've already done and are going to do in the future, by the way. God looks at this and he says, I cannot have them. There will be idolatry. It's not a hypothesis. It's a given. There will be idolatry. Don't believe me? Wait until next week. So God ordered that the land be cleansed of all those who don't believe in him. That way the Israelites would face the least amount of temptation to stray. Look at it this way. It's like putting them in a bubble-ish, right? If I can just, if I can insulate them some, then they can figure out what it means to be my people in this land and we'll go from there. But still... This seems to be a violation of human rights, doesn't it? And that's where we get off track. Does God matter? And and does he have the right to do what needs to be done because he is the all-powerful God? Or, Or do human rights 
overpower what God thinks should happen. Do you get my question? Do I need to ask it again? Is he God or do our rights trump what he wants to do? If we say, well, our rights trump what he needs to do, then who is he? Nothing. He's nothing. He's nothing. Our tendency is to want to make this story and applying it in these ways, well, what about the people? Which is a good question to ask. Uh, we're not saying those people don't matter at all in the grand scheme of things, right? But what we are saying is this, and this is where the story helps us. This story is not about man's triumph over God. It's not. It's not about how humanity subdued him, watered him down, and beat him into submission. By the way, even when we have the chance to do that, God still wins. It's not that story. It is the story of a good, just, loving, creating, caring, merciful God who has tied himself to a creation that will often choose anything but him. So God does what he knows is necessary to insulate his people. He is the hero of the story and he is desperately trying to make this work. But the bottom line is this. Is he God? Can he do what he sees fit? Does he matter? And the way that we answer that question whether we agree with God or disagree, whether we think it was a great choice or a poor choice, especially whether it's what we would do or not do, that's where the rub really comes. Is he God? And what is the one thing he is trying to prove to his people in this story? That he is God. God's People, the whole region, the world, after all this is over, they now should know one thing without any doubt, that God is real, that he matters, and he is not to be dismissed. He is not to be dismissed. At the end of the story Joshua is about to die and he speaks wonderful words to them. He tells them the story of how God brought them out of Egypt. He tells a story about how God sent them through all these places and brought them victory after victory after victory after victory. Wayne, this is probably on the last or next to last slide. And here's what he says. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and all groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. This is Joshua speaking here. And it's, it's fascinating to me that at the end of all of this God work and triumph, at the end of this amazing campaign, what does Joshua know he has to do? Are you in or are you out? Why would he even need to do that at this point? I mean, shouldn't that be a given? 
But he stands up in front of everyone. He says, God has done all of these things you didn't. And so today, make your choice. My choice is to serve God. What's yours? And the people who have gone through so much stand up and say, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Will they? I want them to. God has done so much for them. But here's the fascinating thing. Even with all of the drastic measures that God took to create a safe space for his people to grow in him, there is still too much danger around. Too much influence, too many voices that are all saying, you should come serve us. You should come serve our gods. You should come do what we're doing. God did all of these things. And he did it for his people because he is the keeper of promises. They took step out. They took steps out in faith and God delivered everything he said he would. All they had to do was trust that he is God and follow him to where they, to the places that he would lead. I think that the same challenge lies in front of us as individuals and as a church. There are too many other gods to count. And they lie all around us. But we are promised that if we step out in faith, that God will deliver us, that God will give us what he has promised. This God that we believe in, if we are willing to step out in faith, can still change the world that we live in. Because he is with us. And so... We should be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. And he is the God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a keeper of promises. For God, you made promises to your people long ago. You make promises to us today. Father, we look at the world around us and we most often focus on the things that will keep us from accomplishing what we want to accomplish or we think you want us to accomplish. But Father, you tell us that if we will step out in faith and trust you, that you will be with us, that we have nothing, nothing to be afraid of. May we be a people that are not motivated by fear, but may we be courageous so that we may make a difference in this world for you. For God, you still want to change people's lives, whether they want you or not. You still want to redeem whether they believe in you or not. You want to save because you love us. So may you go before us as the lover of our souls, the redeemer of our lives, and the one who still can change this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.